I wake with the light every day. And from about the middle of February to May, I lie in bed for half an hour just listening to the birds. If you're looking for an incredibly soothing voice, evocatively and intelligently discussing the power and awe of nature, successes in a long-standing battle with depression, how we need to radically change our relationship with other species, and an awful lot of canine love, then I dare say you're in the right place. For my guest on this episode of Brilliant Brains, with me, Tim Samuels, is Monty Don, writer, broadcaster, and the warm perennial face of British TV gardening shows for two decades. Brilliant Brains is supported by Karmacist, some excellent new supplements for mood, immunity, energy, and de-stressing, which frankly I need all of. Karmacist rather cleverly brings to the party Nutrigenomics, a breakthrough branch of science, and ancient herbs like amla, gotu cola, reishi, and saffron at some party. So you get the best of what their scientists at Harvard and Stanford have been discovering, together with the know-how of plants we've been using for thousands of years. Check out Karmacist, sort of karma and pharmacist, at karmacist.com for some fabulous formulations for mood, immunity, energy, and de-stressing, which come in some rather lovely jars too. And you can get a lovely 10% off by entering the word brilliant at checkout. Right, back to Monty Don. Monty started by talking me through the changing seasons he's been acutely observing in his own countryside garden. Just in terms of the the, the minutiae of the world that you've been really plugged into um, in in your garden home life, when the seasons pass, what's what for you have been the highlights of each season in terms of perhaps the sort of but if you start with fauna, the animals, there's, there's sort of little changes that you've been really tuned into. my world does start. There is that incredible excitement, that slow rise of, of sort of bubbling excitement and joy that comes with, for me, the, the, the daylight that, that increases, particularly in the morning, uh, the dawn chorus. I mean, I wake with the light every day. And from about the middle of February to May, I lie in bed for half an hour just listening to the birds. And it changes every day. Uh, and, and it grows and, and, the, and the tone of it changes because, you know, it starts out in February where birds are looking for a mate and establishing territory. And it's quite strident and, and, and noisy and, and challenging. And then it almost becomes seductive as, as birds sing to, to, to woo. And then there is a kind of a, a softer element that comes through. And then actually dawn chorus dies right down. Once they, they lay eggs and have chicks, um, they've got too much to do <laughs> to sing about it. Uh, and, and obviously, things like the wildflowers that appear in sequence, so they have a story and a pattern and a rhythm from the first little primrose that you get in the new year or the violets going through and, and, and then the bulbs come through and the crocus and the daffodils and the snowdrops and the aconites. And I write about in the book how we've been making a meadow for the last 10 years on our, on our small hill farm, which has just been the most exciting and rewarding thing where, you know, you f- see your first orchid in May and then you sort of count a few more. But it, 
I get the same pleasure from buttercups as I do from orchids. You know, it doesn't have to be rare. And then you see the tadpoles in the pond and the, and the little frogs start to appear um, and the migrating birds. And, and, and the moment that symbolizes to me when a sort of door opens onto spring is when I see the first swallow, which is invariably round about the second week of April. And I just feel, ah, oh, we've come home. You know, that this, the world has come back to itself. And and yet, which I know, is maybe we're not home. Maybe we're maybe we're the summer holiday, and this home is down in South Africa for the swallow, and it's just paying us a visit. But you know, it feels like home. And and coupled with that, at this time of year, is the sort of pang when they've gone. You know, they gather, and invariably the swallows and the house martins. House martins go in dribs and drabs, but the swallows tend to go all together. Is they're there. They're there, evident, and they fill my sky, and they're part of my life. And then I go outside one morning, and they're gone, and it's empty. And that's, that's a real grief. But it's part of the rhythm of the seasons. And, and if you believe spring is going to come again, that's inside you as well as an, you know, an empirical observation outside you. So these two things, this, this blend of, of the internal rhythm, that you can take in from the seasons. And then the, the observations, there is that sense of taking it within you, of absorbing it, of the seasons being something that are inside you and you share with the external reality. And you've been living in, in, in a state of harmony. You're, you're, you're sort of almost immersed. Yes, in a state of balance. And, and I think that, I mean, if you, as I've been lucky enough to do, if you spend a lot of time in the countryside, I'd say lucky enough. It's been deliberate. You know, I mean, I, I deliberately left London at the end of the 1980s when I was, what, in my early 30s to be in the countryside. Um, and I was brought up in the countryside. And I've always walked a lot and, and noted things. That the process of observing things and taking this in is slow. You know, it's, it's in a process of accretion, not something that you can say, oh, right, this week I'm going to go and take it all in. It doesn't work like that. You have to open yourself up, and maybe not much happens. You know, maybe it's just you, you go for a walk and it's just wet, and that's it. That was the experience. But it might be that the next day, and it's just as wet, you, you spot something, or you, you notice that there is a something when it's wet, something happens. Um, it could just be the something is the sound of the little stream that may be dry all summer. And so I think that the luxury of having the time to notice and observe, its greatest reward is this integration and harmony. And whilst you, you have been observing, uh, as I think you know, it's, we have a tendency to romanticise wildlife, but there are an awful lot of creatures who are just there surviving, and survival means at other animals' expenses. Have you, have you been tuned into that? Yeah. And, and uh, I'm very aware of that. You know, it's 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 <laughs> say in the book that the the charming little hedgehog that is becoming desperately endangered and rare, and that we feed, will very happily trundle along, find a nest of baby birds, and eat them all. And the badger, that is sort of this. Member of the bear family that that is sort of feels such a privilege to see will eviscerate the hedgehog with its claws and rip it open and eat it. And you know we keep sheep, and I've watched crows peck the eyes out of a lamb 
as it's being born. Um, now, th those are extreme examples, but by the same token, a thrush will eat a snail. You know, that's, it, it's, it's the whole of life depends upon that. Um, and then, then there can be a beauty in it because one of the birds that have in, I increasingly see over our garden are hobbies, which are summer visitors, incredibly beautiful falcon and streamlined and, and just it was so rare when I was a child that I still just, you know, it's like seeing a snow leopard in the garden. And hobbies feed, amongst they feed off dragonflies and swallows and house martins and bats. And so I long to see a hobby catch and kill one of my beautiful swallows, which is kind of perverse and, 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 and complicated. But I know that that's what happens. And in order for that hobby to be here, it has to eat. And that's what it's going to eat. And so um, I think you have to accept that. You, you know, we, we do romanticize nature and we don't want blood and we, we want the fluff. You know, we have this absurd hierarchy of what is acceptable and adorable. You know, it's terrible to, to hunt some things, but perfectly okay to kill a rat or, or, or whatever. And I think that's human nature, but, but we do need to be aware of it. Mm. And in this state of balance and it's, and the sort of natural hierarchy, we as humans are around animals. And I know you've, you've been devoted to, to dogs. Um, what, do you, what do you get from, from canine company? I get a relationship that is based upon absolute blind loyalty and forgiveness. Your dog, whatever you are like, However you are, your dog will, will both forgive your transgressions and love you. Now, I mean, that, that is a very basic thing, and every dog owner knows that. You know, this, the, the constancy and steadfastness of it is very moving and very companionable. And it is, and so on one level, that's, that's true. On another, I find it fascinating to watch an animal. At such close quarters. I mean, as I'm talking to you now, I've got a dog lying next to me. Which, which one? <laughs> I've got little actually Patty, the little Yorkshire Terrier, the tiny little dog. I mean, I've never had a Yorkshire Terrier before, so I'm fascinated at watching how she behaves. And sometimes I feel we had a golden retriever called Nigel who um, became very well known and, and much loved. And he was big. And I would sometimes see him lying before the fire and think, there's a great big animal in the room. You know, how amazing is that? How extraordinary. And that they let us sort of accept us completely. And yet, if it was a, a bear or a lynx or a wolf, we would at best be incredibly wary and if not terrified. And yet it's not so very different. So there is, I always have this wonder that, that these, these creatures that are only a hair's breadth away from wild animals share our lives so so complicitly and i mean that's true of a cat too you know that, that the the fascination that a cat will choose although cats are much more selective and and fickle about it cats will give what they want to give in order that they can get what they want but be absolutely ruthless about <laughs> as and when they do it whereas a dog will will form a sort of bargaining relationship and i think it is possible to really properly love a dog and the cat, I guess. But I, I think for me, it's easier with dogs. It's a proper relationship. It's a friendship. It's a true friendship 
Monty, I'd love to talk about, as you've alluded to, the kind of sort of healing power of nature. And you've been admirably candid about uh, depression, which has sort of lurked around since your mid-twenties, which uh, I can... I mean, I can relate to that and would go back to my early 20s. When when would, when did you have the, the, the joys of serotonin first having a wobble? <laughs> well, I think with hindsight, it was in my teens, um, although I didn't recognize it as that. Um, I, and I think, you know, I, I sort of thought that probably all, all that this was part of being a teenager, but with hindsight, it wasn't. When was the nadir for you, do you think? certainly by my early 20s. And it got worse. And I think maybe for men, it does get worse as you get into your mid to late 20s and early 30s. You know, it's, there does seem to be a pattern of, of if you have a disposition towards that way, it, it, it gets worse as you, as you enter adulthood and it, that progresses. Although I have to say, touch wood, as I'm getting older, it seems to be getting better. You know, I, well, now whether that's because one learns to manage it better, or whether because it actually ceases to ceases to be around so much, I don't know. But um, I did have a time in in the, in the nineteen eighties. We had a jewelry business, and we were based in London. And we had a shop in Beecham Place, and we sold to Boy George and Princess Diana and Elton John and Michael Jackson and all these sort of people. And we did films, we did operas and, and record covers and, and, you know, that whole world. And it went fantastically well. We sold all over the world. I used to go, you know, America a lot and New York and so on and so forth. And then we got hit by the crash of 87. And I've cut a long story short, and I, I've written about it. Uh, we lost everything. And, and I do mean everything that we had. And so then I found myself having lost my house and my business and, uh, and everything. And I'd started to do some television, which cropped up at the same time, unbidden, but it, I'm very happy to do it because of some money involved and I desperately needed money. Um, and then as the way television does, you know, I did quite a lot one year and I thought, well, yeah, this is the way it goes. Fantastic. And then they just said, okay, fine. That's great. Bye. And they just reshowed everything that we had shot. You know, now I know that's the way the cookie crumbles. That's the way it works because you've got material. You don't pay for it to more. If, so I was out of work. I'd gone from having my own business, having a London house, country house, um, doing television, to being on the dole and, and mowing the local churchyard at 10 quid a pop to earn money to feed my family. And I was 35. And I genuinely thought that I'd never work again. And um, as anybody who's ever been on the dole, and I, you know, I, know, I, I know it's not called the dole now, but I, th I think of it as being on the dole, who's as an adult with children, it's a deeply humiliating experience. You know, it's, it's, um, it grinds you. Uh, and I was I'm very sorry about that. And, um, and my wife, to eternal credit, and we were living, we'd been staying in one bedroom in my parents-in-law's house, and then we rented this rat-infested cottage and my wife said, you have to go and see somebody because I can't live with you if you're like this because I've got three, three children under five to look after and I can't look after you too. And, you know, I love you and I want to help you, but I can't. You have to go and get help. And it was the best thing that she ever could have said 
because I then <laughs> I went to my local GP and said I've got a bad knee. <laughs> <laughs> Classic male trait. Yeah. Absolutely. And he said, Great. And then I burst into tears. And he said, Fine, any any other problems? <laughs> so and he was he was fantastic. He was great. And then on the NHS, I got medication and I got treatment. I got cognitive therapy, which was fantastic for me. And so I started to deal with it. And, and you know, I, I was on medication for about seven years. Um, so I guess that was the Nadia. But, but you know, as anybody who, who deals with depression and is a depressive, it, it never quite goes away. And it's not, it's not like a sort of, oh, I've got flu. It's sort of a, it can be a lurking presence. It can almost, I mean, I always feel of it that, Sometimes it feels as though the surface of things is rather like fragile ice and you have to tread very carefully. And everything might seem fine. And to the outside world, you might seem fine, but you know that it's incredibly tenuous. And, and, and at other times, you don't even think about it. Other times, you are fine. But to the outside world, those two states are, are completely the same. Yes, no, it's, it's amazing what you can uh, project outwards and people have no idea what's what's other feet are kicking below the surface but do you do you do you, do you sort of think there's this uh you know you might have a predisposition or product of a sort of a particular childhood and a sort of stiff upper lip i think all these things i mean i think that uh, my father was definitely a depressive so i think there may be an inherent uh element in that i certainly had a very by modern standards a very old-fashioned childhood where it absolutely was, you know, shut up and get on with it. Um, and I was sent away to school when I was seven and, you know, all, all the sort of classic um, 1950s, 1960s, middle-class home counties upbringing. But I don't, you know, there were lots of people who had exactly the same upbringing who aren't and weren't uh, depressive. And I also think that if you are sensitive enough to open yourself to the joys and the glories, it is likely that you're going to have to suffer the lows. I mean, one of the reasons I stopped medication was because I didn't know if I was feeling things anymore. I didn't, I, I, I didn't know if, if it was me or if the medication was controlling my reaction to things. And, and I've never been tempted to go back onto medication, although I have used light boxes and I do really... Um, do everything I can to sort of take exercise and get outside. I mean, you know, I'm a guy, I go and I walk the dogs and I do other exercise and I, um, you know, I try and get enough sleep. And, and you know, I, in other words, there are, there are practical physical things you can do that help ward off. Um, and I also know, as I, and I suspect other people w- would recognize this, that when you feel yourself going down, there is a tendency to indulge is the wrong word, but to aid and abet the process. You know, to, to listen to music that you know will trigger things, to, to see things, to, to hunt out the means of your despair. And I've, as I've got older, I've learned you really, really have to resist that. You say that Earth heals. Uh, does that outdoor time feel like a sort of fundamental part of of sanity 
yes, I need that fix. I need to go outside. I need and and you know I need to plant things. I need to feel the soil. I need to tend it. I need to feel the connection with it. And to kind of return to this, I guess the overarching theme of of being in balance and being in harmony. There is this kind of understanding now that with the, with the brain gut axis. 80%, maybe more of our of our serotonin is in the gut. And we're not getting that diversity of bacteria. Part of the reason, because we are divorced from nature. And just by handling soil and, and being amongst nature means you're going to get a more varied microbiome, which potentially could be good for the gut-brain axis. So, uh, I mean, it's kind of conjecture, but maybe just even having your hands in the soil is good for your mood. I think the research is that maybe even just breathing in the soil is good for your mood because you do get bacteria. Some of it is inhaled, but certainly um, there seems to be, and as you say, the research is still going on, there seems to be growing evidence that handling the soil, planting, digging, um, having direct contact is actively good for your, as you say, your gut biome. And, and, that, and I think it's generally accepted that you know what was thought to be a valve between, mm. at the neck, which was, uh, your brain had no relationship to. That is now much more widely thought of as as having a very close connection. So yes, I'm sure that is true. But I mean, I'm a lay person. I've read the various books. You know, I'm, I'm, funnily enough, I, I did a thing yesterday with Sue Stewart Smith, who wrote a marvelous book about um, health and, and gardening, um, and I sort of. I think it's a book called The Inflamed Brain or um, The Inflamed Mind that, that talks about this gut relationship. But I'm absolutely certain that, that working the soil is actively and physically good for your brain, your serotonin levels. But also, I think eating food that has been grown in soil. I mean, I, I've been a champion of organic gardening and agriculture for many years, and, and I've practiced it for many years. Um, and I think that the health aspect is really important. But unfortunately, we, we tend to regard health in a very crude way as we measure these things. But I, I think that the health of your mind and the health of your gut and the relationship between the bacteria in the soil and the bacteria in your gut and, the, and, and through the plant and, and, and so on and so forth is actively beneficial. And, and uh, I'm sure that... Quite a lot of our problems, our health problems, are just directly related to to a lot of the food that we eat. If we if we could create a society that valued food more, then I think we would be healthier. And 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 it seems to me incredible that governments don't put more effort into healthy eating. I mean, truly healthy eating, as part of the national health program and service, uh, rather than than dealing with the fallout from unhealthy eating. Monty, in terms of looking at our impact on nature, we, you know we can see how nature impacts us, and, and clearly uh, in incredible ways. Climate change is something that you're you're increasingly seeing, is, is it, in just in your gardening calendar? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in in the spring is about ten days earlier than when I was a young man. And and by that, I mean all the signs of spring, the blossom, the, the bulbs, the grass growing, all that is happening a good 10 days to two weeks earlier. Our winters are definitely getting warmer and wetter. Our summers are getting 
more overcast but warmer. Um, so sort of less attractive heat. The, the 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 Mediterranean summers that we I remember writing about twenty five years ago as as what we would get as a result of climate change. Unfortunately, it's not what we're getting. So yeah, the weather patterns are changing. The seasons are coming earlier. We're getting much more rain, but I mean, not much more overall, but much more incidents of rain. We're getting more storms, and a lot of people have noticed. You get th- things like you're starting to see blossom occurring in autumn. Trees will, apple trees will start to to re-blossom, if you like, to have another go. And not all of this is bad. I mean, some of it just is, and we observe it. But the what we do know is, that, you know, the, the really serious things, the melting of the ice caps and the acidification of the oceans and the, and the drying up of the, the spread of the desert are catastrophic for future human life as we know it. I mean, we may well have to adapt, and I suspect we will. As you say, though, you know, we've had a good go at this. The planet will be all right. And when you look at somewhere like Chernobyl, once, once the humans leave nature, reasserts itself yeah well absolutely and and actually in the scheme of things maybe that's fine you know it's it's what makes us so special that we can't go extinct i mean it's maybe our sort of process towards destruction is just part of the pattern and and no different to any other creature although actually what i suspect will happen or one one scenario that it seems quite probable is that a huge amount of people, mostly poor people, mostly disadvantaged, will suffer greatly in order that the remainder suffer less. In other words, I don't think it's going to be a neat sort of extinction. There we are, bong, we're gone. I just think there's going to be misery involved. And, and it's our moral duty to try and lessen that or at least reduce it we have an absolute obligation to our as to humanity to to look after each other and and that i don't even mean that on a grandiose ways i mean you know i have a grandchild um i want to leave a world that is possible for him and and to to get to that point how far do we have to redefine our relationship, I guess, with wildlife and animals and animal husbandry. I, I know you've been a, a very early uh, proponent of organic farming. Does changing our, our, our food system and, and the way in which we rear animals have to be central to that? I mean, I think by and large, most of our meat production is repulsive, and I use the word advisedly. It's, it's disgusting. You know, we we feed the majority of the meat that we eat, and the majority of the meat that we eat is chicken and pork and beef, cereals and soya. And in order to do that, we we cut down the rainforests, and uh, you know, we grow. In order to 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 sell palatable food, we we have huge amounts of fructose and 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 grow maize for it and, and have palm oil and, and it all feeds back into our diet. And I think that I'm I'm a I'm a meat eater and I'm not at all ashamed of that, but we've all got to eat a lot less meat. And I think the the un, the hard thing about that is we've all got to if we want to eat meat, we've got to be prepared to pay for it. What it actually costs. At the moment we're paying for it with our health. And the less money you have, the more you're paying because the worse the food you're eating, so therefore the worse your health is going to be. And if you're rich, you can afford to buy good food. And that must be wrong. 
that cannot be a sustainable way to run a society. Uh, Monty Don, end with a couple of quickfire questions. Um, who is your brilliant brain? Who do you, who do you hold up in reverence? Good. Um, I suppose um, when I was a young man, I always thought Aldous Huxley was the cleverest person that ever lived. I read everything he did, you know, this combination of science and the arts. It's funny, my mind doesn't work like this. I don't really hear I worship anybody. I pick and choose, I, I dip into. I think the, um, and my mind has got splendidly blank. Oh, which, which, which animal do you most admire? We could, we could, we could open it up to the animal kingdom. I most admire birds of prey. And yesterday morning, I was opening the greenhouse when I saw a flash of wings and went outside and looked. And a peregrine falcon flew low over the garden. And I just thought, you are the most exquisite thing on this planet. And it's not just your actual beauty that I, you know, my aesthetic on that. It's the streamlined function that all life, this sort of angry, focused, fierce, but rather pure existence. And it's not soft. It's not easy. But it's incredibly beautiful. It's just life stripped down to to this sort of one thing. There's, there's the element of the shark about it. And I think that with the ability to, to fly with such beauty and such speed, I think it's the most exquisite creature. Uh, Monty, dust off your wellies. You are now um, officially global dictator. Um, your mission is to enhance people's net happiness. What, what will you do now that you're, you're in charge of everyone? I will make it mandatory that every politician who aspires to cabinet office has to show that they have an allotment and contend it conscientiously and regularly. And unless they can do that, they certainly aren't fit for office. That, that will weed out the, uh, the underwhelming lot. <laughs> and and, and the, the semi-serious point of that is, is that if they care, if they show that they really actively care for the earth and what they grow and what they eat, puts them in a good starting position. It may not. I mean, it may not make them suitable at all, but it certainly won't do any harm. Monty Don, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Your voice has such a meditative quality to it. I, I I feel my cortisol levels have dropped just talking to you. Thanks so much for your time. And, and The Garden World is out now and absolutely worth a read. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed it. Thanks to Monty Don. To hear all 12 episodes of Brilliant Brains, including Harvard scientist Dr. David Sinclair, explain why ageing is optional and what he does to stop the body growing old, go to karmacist.com, home of our sponsor. Thanks also to Nature Boy for the music and producer Tess Davidson. From me, Tim Samuels, that's this episode of Brilliant Brains. <laughs>